Um, I'm sending around panelists invitations if you want to be seen and to ask questions a little easier. This is a great way to do it. Um, and if you are, except do want to see and be seen, we like seeing your faces here. And just as a one other last point of housekeeping, if you are going to have, please keep yourself muted if you're not actively speaking, just because otherwise we get cross chatter and or background noise, and that is a little, and that can be disruptive. But with that, that bit of you know, two seconds of housekeeping. Keeping aside, it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Malka Sinkovich to teach at Brisha again. She, she is joining us this for these next three weeks to teach on a class, the Catholic Church and the Jewish people in contemporary times. Uh, this course will survey the complex and evolving relationship between Jews and Catholics in modern times, beginning with a statement issued by the Second Vatican Council in 1965, which retracted the church's longstanding claim that Jews are guilty of deicide. All right. Hey. All right. Well, should I begin? Hello, everybody. Oh, you're muted, Kayla. I hear you speaking, but you are still muted. Yes. We are live on Facebook, so you are ready, ready to go when you're ready. Okay. And I see seven people on the call. So that's who we have on Zoom, correct? Okay. All right. Hello to all of you on Facebook and on Zoom. It's wonderful to be learning with the Drisha family after uh, maybe four or five months of a little uh, Drisha sabbatical. So we are back and I really appreciate the organizers of this series uh, <clears throat> making this happen. Uh, we only have one hour to do uh, a lot of learning. And so before I begin, I'm going to say a little bit about this series and then we're just gonna dive straight in. Um, so this series, as uh, Kayla noted, uh, tries to cover the contemporary relationship between the church, and by that I mean the Catholic church and the global Jewish community, whatever that is, we know it's not a monolith, uh, but really in order to do that, we have to do some background work. And so this first class is going to do um, that historical work. I'm going to share a PowerPoint and in this PowerPoint, we will look at uh, a brief history of Christian anti-Semitism. It's not very brief, but uh, we'll try to squeeze it into 20 or 30 minutes. And, uh, and then we will spend the maybe the final 20, 25 minutes of the class looking at this, uh, the document known as Nostra Aetate, which was produced by the church in 1965 after four or five years of deliberation and controversy. And this document retracts the accusation against the Jewish people of deicide of God murder. That's what we're going to do today. And next week, we are going to look at what happened after 1965 and how uh, church leaders struggled to interpret Nostra Aetate, which was in many ways, I think, intentionally ambiguous about the status of the Jewish people. And we'll look at church documents and particularly the papacies of John Paul II and Benedict XVI. And in the, the third class, uh, we will do the fun stuff. Uh, well, it's all fun, but in the third class, we'll look at the Jewish response. I say it's fun because much of it is really passionate um, and maybe fun is not the right word because a lot of this uh, strong feeling about dialogue comes from incredible trauma and pain. Uh, and we'll look at the very Jewish responses to the overtures of the Catholic church and talk about 
why this relationship is still so very complicated. Um, and so I'm going to share my screen. If you've learned with me before, you know that I truly hate doing this because I like to see your faces. And I really appreciate Ruth Shane, if I can call you out, having your camera on, facially responding, that keeps me going. If anybody else is willing to turn their camera on, I just have to say it makes a huge difference for me. Even if I am sharing my screen, I can see your tiny little square faces and it does really make me feel uh, very energized. So uh, with that, thank you and thank you, Alana. Um, and uh, I know that if you can't uh, turn on your screen, that's absolutely understandable. We all have good reasons uh, for, for that as well. So if you can, great. And if not, uh, that's, that's fine too. All right, I'm sharing my screen. And I'm going to begin. It's going to be very hard to squeeze this all into an hour, but we're, we're going to do our best. All right. So I begin with the Oberammergau play. Has anybody here? I'm going to. Oh, boy. All right. So now you should see the Oberammergau play. All right. I see some nods. That's great. Um, and we are a very small group on, on Zoom. So you can unmute if you're, uh, if, if you're able to and just tell me yes or no. Have you heard of the Oberammergau play? Okay, a little yeah. bit. Kayla, Kayla's heard of the Oberammer. Yes. Okay, all right. And I heard someone else say yes. All right. <clears throat> the Oberammer Girl play is one of the longest running plays in modern history. Um, and it was um, Oberammer Girl is a small town in Bavaria in southern Germany where uh, in 1634, I'm just trying to move my little square, but it keeps, hold on a second. Okay. Uh, all right. <laughs> Sorry, I want to see your faces and I want to see the, the PowerPoint. I'm not able to do both. Okay. Um, in 1634, the bubonic plague hit this uh, town very, very hard. And um, much of the town died of plague. The townspeople who were devoutly Christian made a vow to God saying, uh, God, if you save us from the bubonic plague, we promise to do a very pious thing, to put on a play that tells the story of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah. Um, and there's been a lot of controversy lately about me say, saying C-H-R-I-S-T. So I guess I have to be a little more circumspect about whether I say that. But I only say that when I'm talking about the Christian perspective. Um, of course, not my perspective. In any case, um, so the townspeople make a vow. We are going to put on uh, a play, a passion play, passion from the Greek word for suffering. And, uh, and this play, again, will tell the uh, story of Jesus. And we promise to do this every, um, we promise to do this play um, and, and ultimately when the bubonic plague departed the town, which was shortly after they put on the play in 1634, the townspeople made a vow. We're going to put this play on forever and ever and ever, every 10 years and every 50 years from 1634 on. And indeed the town of Oberammergau has put on a massive passion play every 10 years. And the most recent one was supposed to be in 2020. It was pushed off for COVID. It just happened in 2022. When I say this is a big deal, it cannot be understated. 500,000 people travel from all over the world to see this play. Every season has about 100 performances. And so you're talking about a massive event in the Christian world. Now, the Oberammergau play, <clears throat> which is very famous for its, um, you know, they have 10 years to put it on. So it's a massive production. The most recent one had 2,500 people on the stage, not all at the same time, but 2,500 people participate in the play. Um, these are people who live in the town. They're professional actors who come in. The director, uh, Kristen uh, Stuckel, is from Oberammergau, but he's a very well-known director. Um, and so 
why am I bringing up over Amargal? Because it's one of the most anti-Semitic uh, representations of Jews to uh, ever be performed in the church. Um, <clears throat> there have been times where Jews were on the stage. They're not real Jews, of course, they're Christian actors, but the, they're performing as Jews with, with horns, with devil's horns. Their, their portrayal is that they're bloodthirsty. They want nothing but uh, Jesus's death. They're greedy, they're corrupt, they're unethical. They stand for everything that the good, pious, meek Christians uh, don't stand for. In other words, they're the total foil of Jesus. Now, um, people went to see this play over the past 350 years. That includes Jews. In 1900, uh, there was a rabbi uh, from, I um, can't remember his last name, something like Nauskoff or something. And this uh, rabbi from Philadelphia went to see the play uh, in 1900. He wrote a book about it. He was totally horrified. So Jews knew about the play. There was not much they could do. Hitler loved the play. He saw in the early 1930s and he said, this is one of the greatest representations that speaks to the truth of the nature of the Jewish people. So uh, who else loved the play? Oh, Henry Ford loved the play. So again, you know, not the people that we would want to have um, on our side uh, or, you know, not our friends. So Over Amargau um, is a notorious uh, play in the eyes of uh, the Jewish community, although today might not be so very well known. All of this brings me to the 2022 performance, which looks something like this. Huh? What is, what is this? There's a Chanukiah, there's a menorah. I mean, I don't know if that's a temple menorah, it's probably a temple menorah. And then you have a hair coverings and you have very pious, looking people. Look, someone's making hamotzi, someone's blessing the bread. That's interesting. Oh, look, Hoshano. What's happening here? Is it Sukkot? Jesus is coming on a donkey. Look at all these boys. Uh, they are uh, wearing kipot. What is happening? And look, this is, I just took this illegally, I guess, from a stock image. So I, I didn't pay permissions for it. So that's why it has the uh, water uh, mark on it. Um, and and in, in 2022 and in 2010, and in 2000, and also 1990, varies, um, in 1990, um, the Ober play looked totally different from all the performances before it. In recent performances under the directorship of Christian Stuckel, uh, Jews have worn kippot, all the Jews, uh, including Jesus, who is a pious, observant Jew. Uh, there's no mention of Pharisees, of the Jewish sect that was responsible for handing Jesus over to the Romans. There's even no blood cry, uh, the collective cry in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, where all the Jews say, his blood be upon us and on our, our children. And that was uh, a big reason why Christians held all Jews responsible for the, uh, for the death of their God, again, deicide. Um, the, the past few over Amargat performances have underscored friendship. Uh, between the early uh, followers of Jesus and other Jews who did not accept Jesus as their Messiah um, and, and really resisted this temptation to set Christianity against Judaism. Like these are two opposite religions who stand for opposite values. How did this happen? How did this happen? That's the topic of the next 50 minutes or so. Um, how does the world's most anti-Semitic play become a bellwether, a symbol of Jewish Christian friendship. Christian Schuchel has gotten every award you can imagine. The AJC just honored him. He's gotten the Martin Buber award. I mean, awards that you've never heard of. He's gotten uh, those awards uh, from Jews who are interested in interfaith relations, Jewish-Christian dialogue. Christian Schuchel is the darling of this community for very good reason. How how could this have happened? He was born in Oberammergau. Christian Schuchel talks about how he was a little boy sitting in cafes in this beautiful Bavarian town 
And all the townspeople did for 10 years is talk about the next Oprah Emmergau play. And he's there sitting, you know, as a little boy thinking like, oh, you know, maybe one day I'll grow up and I'll direct this play. But like he, he witnessed as a very small child performances that were shockingly anti-Semitic. So the answer is, is that in 1965, right around the time that Stuckel is born, the Catholic church undergoes the massive religious transformation in history, in my opinion. So let's talk about this. Really, in order to understand this, oh, look, 500,000 people. This is just one performance in 2022 of Oberammergau. I, I just thought that was like a, a great picture because the room is packed. And if you go onto the website, I mean, you can see online, like the numbers are like like you could not fathom how many people loved. So, and they don't just go once, they go once every 10 years. And some of these people go and they go and they go from all over the world, half a million people. And this year I actually heard it was closer to 750,000. So I'm just saying, this is like a really big deal. Okay. Um, and so now I'm not keeping track of time, but I, we're gonna, this is gonna be a squeeze. <clears throat> a very brief <laughs> guide to Christian anti-Semitism, but we gotta get to Nostratate. So you're gonna forgive me if I skip some slides, but this, um, okay. We're, we're gonna we're gonna just go fast. So this is the blood cry, Matthew twenty eight. When Pilate, the Roman procurator, sees that uh, that he can't do anything, that bloodthirstiness of the Jews is so powerful, and they're just so desperate to kill Jesus, and he knows that if he doesn't kill Jesus, there's going to be a riot. He says, you know what? Just forget it. I wash my hands of the situation. So Pilate is very sympathetic in this scene, even though the Romans, you know, Matthew admits the Romans are the ones who crucify Jesus, but really it was the Jews who galvanized this program. And the Jews say, oh, you, you wanna be innocent of it? Great, we will happily take upon the guilt of the murder of Jesus. In fact, we'll put that responsibility on our children. That's how much we believe that this fool, this dangerous, traitorous, false Messiah should be killed. Of course, it's not history. This is polemic. This is the gospel of Matthew. And the, the way that early followers of Jesus and then Christians, because there are no Christians in the first century, you can't say Christians when you talk about the first century, but the way that the earliest followers of Jesus read this is very literal. The Jews happily took upon responsibility for the murder of Jesus. And this text justifies blaming every generation of Jews forever and ever consequent to this incident for the death of Jesus, for deicide, for God murder, although that word doesn't show up until a few centuries later. So this blood cry is very dangerous to the Jews. And you'll see that in the medieval period, it's used as a justification to take revenge against masses of uh, Jewish communities are just wiped out in the Crusades in the name of revenge for deicide. Um, the Gospel of John, the fourth gospel, takes it a step further. Not only are the Jews um, responsible for the murder of Jesus, but they inherently represent, uh, I wouldn't say subhuman, of course, that like evokes Nazi language, but a sort of a transcendently different type of stock than the people who follow Jesus. So when the, the Pharisees are arguing with Jesus and they say, well, our Abraham is our father and this is what we've learned from that tradition. Jesus says, no, 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 you don't come from Abraham because Jesus upends, or at least according to John, upends the supremacy of a, of a kind of a genealogical or biological descent. What's much more significant to Jesus is the spiritual 
um, genealogy. So he says, you're, you're not, in fact, the, the true descendants of Abraham. Uh, you are the descendants of the devil, right? Why do you not understand what I say? Look at the underlined. It is because you cannot accept my word. You are from your father, the devil, and you choose to do your father's desires. And so this dehumanizes all the Jews. Of course, in Greek, it's very ambiguous. Does Judaios mean Judeans, people who happen to live in the area of Judea, or all Jews everywhere? And the latter interpretation is how it was read. All Jews everywhere from, uh, are from the devil and are responsible for the death of the God of, of the Christians, of the God of the world. So this is very, very serious. And of course, is this history? No, no. This is how uh, writers in the late first century CE are writing these stories to make a very um, hard line between followers of Jesus and those who rejected Jesus. But the reality on the ground is much more complicated. There's no two separate religions at this early stage. All right, I have to go a little farther. I just want to note that in the fourth century, you start to see this word dia. You start to see this word diacida, God murder. You have a rise in what we'd call anti-Jewish. I don't like the word anti-Semitic, but okay. Anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish language that really uh, calls upon, um, or I'll say it this way. We all know very sadly from contemporary events, the close connection between anti or, or hateful racist um, rhetoric and physical violence. And so here you have this kind of very violent rhetoric uh, against the Jews, and you see it in the writings of the church fathers, especially in the third and fourth century, especially uh, with uh, the, the Antiochian bishop, uh, John Chrysostom, whose last name, that wasn't his real name, but it, it's Chrysostoma in uh, Greek, that would be golden mouth. He was considered to be a beautiful speaker. And he uses this talent for oratory to talk about the Jews in pretty terrible ways. Israel is as obstinate as a stubborn heifer. Of course, that's biblical language, although beasts, heifers are even better than Jews because they're fit for killing. Uh, oh no, sorry, because the Jews are fit for killing. Um, beasts, although such beasts are not fit for work. In other words, here, the beasts are the Jews. Heifers are fit for work. Jews are not fit for work. They're fit for killing. Nothing's more miserable than those people who never fail to attack their own salvation. So it really, really hates the Jews. Um, all right, um, I'm not gonna spend so much time on this, but as the Roman empire legalizes and then adopts the Christian religion, they enact certain uh, laws through new law codes. Um, that uh, suppress and oppress Jewish life. So it, it starts in the fifth century um, that um, synagogues, new synagogues cannot be built, that Jews cannot have any sort of social, economic, or political power over Christians. I would be glad to send this to you, uh, this whole PowerPoint to you, if you want me to, at the end of this class, I would just ask that you not uh, distribute it beyond, uh, beyond Drisha world. Uh, but in any case, um, so because I am gonna race a little bit, the papal, this is Innocent III from the Crusades. He was really uh, a tough guy, although here you might think like his little tassels make him look charming, but uh, no, uh, papal policy on the Jews. Um, so they have this sort of Augustinian attitude. Augustine in the fourth century says Jews are, you have to answer this theological question. Why did the Jews survive if God hates them so much and broke their covenant? And so the answer is, well, because God wants the Jews to be a living witness, a kind of reminder of what not to do. So the witness uh, of the Jews transforms the Jews into actors upon the Christian stage. And not just actors, like literally actors in the Oberammergau play, but um, but but the foil, the villains, and uh, they, they, their whole inherent function is only um, to stand as the opposite for what the good Christian stands for. And so there are these um, 
Judas-like figures, Cain-like figures, any villain that you could find in the Hebrew Bible or the, Old or the New Testament, that's what the Jews are. All right, I'm going to skip the massacres, the blood libels. I'm going to skip. Um, but you know, it's interesting, although I, it was so easy to find the art. Because, and I have a lot of, I teach Catholic students. A lot of my students are very resistant when I talk about the history of the church's anti-Semitism. They really want to think of the church as sort of this being like emblematic of the universal example of, of love. But the art speaks for itself. I mean, in the medieval period, uh, Christian artists were very, I want to say proud, uh, but maybe, maybe honest, upfront, direct about how they thought about Jews. And the art is, endless when it comes to the accusations. Look at how the rabbis are portrayed killing that young, blonde, innocent uh, boy for a ritual blood for matzah. Look where that knife is, yikes. Um, okay, so we are going to move on. The, the Talmud is burned in 1240. I mean, this is not a nice picture. Um, the Black Plague is very significant though. I wanna rest on this for a moment because uh, this does speak again to the Oberammergau play. And of course, to the plague that we are just now starting to maybe move out of hopefully. Um, and this is a pattern that when plague arrives, the Jews are blamed. Um, the Jews not only were blamed, but the Jews of Strasbourg. I don't, oh yeah, I do have it here. The Jews of Strasbourg were, were forced into their synagogue and the synagogue was set on fire. Um, the, the plague was, um, I think we have like this kind of myth of like, well, the Jews survived the plague because they had better hygiene, because they washed their hands. Um, historians today say, well, no, actually, many of the Jews died. Uh, Jews suffered from the plague, just like the Christians suffered from the plague. It really is quite a myth that the Jews sort of just like observed uh, and somehow were uh, immune to it. And I will say again, just to be honest, uh, although it's difficult to hear, that even today um, I've um, been on the receiving end of comments about how Jews sort of escaped COVID. They, you know, whatever. Uh, okay, so they're blamed for, uh, for, for plague. Uh, they're blamed for when a child goes uh, missing or uh, is uh, found killed. Um, okay, uh, repeated expulsions. That is just a shocking map. Just rest your eyes upon that for 10 seconds uh, before we go on. And there's a, there's a very strong connection between expulsion and the blood libel. So the very first blood libel is known as the blood libel of William of Norwich in, um, in England. And the fervor that was aroused in the townspeople of Norwich spread throughout England and really does, uh, scholars think, uh, have a close relationship with the ultimate expo uh, expulsion of Jews from England. Now you have the Inquisition. We all know about the Inquisition. Uh, to quote Monty Python, nobody expects the Inquisition. Joke, don't worry about it. Um, okay, um, so the first ghetto in Rome. See, it's <laughs> gorgeous Roman architecture sort of eliding the suffering of the Jews in Rome. The Jews, um, were forced to uh, go to church every Sunday morning and listen to uh, sermons in the 16th uh, and 17th century. Uh, look, they had to um, wear distinctive clothing outside the ghetto. Hold on, I wanna go back to this for a second. Um, and this is uh, of course borrowed by the Nazis uh, with the rise of um, the, the uh, Weimar rule in 1933. Um, and so the Jews had to leave the ghetto right outside the ghetto. There was propaganda, there was a billboard. And if you've been to the Roman ghetto, you'd walk out, you would see the San Gregorio church and there's a billboard that was there for every Jew to see when they would leave the ghetto. And the billboard is still there today. And you can see uh, there's the close up on the left and the church on the right. And you could see the close up is a citation of Yeshayahu, the very end of Yeshayahu, the second to last parak, 
where God says, I don't have the Hebrew uh, memorized. I held out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. So this is quite bold, I think, to take the scriptures of the Jewish people and then turn it against them and say, you know what? Even your own God really hates you. And look at this verse that's talking about you. Now we offer you salvation. Um, all you have to do is take on the Lord and Savior uh, and you keep saying no. So back to the ghetto you go. Uh, but so this is still um, still there today. Uh, it's quite distressing, but also an important important testament. The visual um, the visual evidence for how Christians have thought about Jews uh, is really prominent in these European medieval and late medieval churches. All right, so yeah, okay, I'll move past the ghetto. And uh, even today, if you go to Paris and you see the Notre Dame Cathedral, this is not a good picture. Oh, darn, I, I, um, I sort of like skipped. Okay, if you look this up online, you'll see that um, on, the, on the cathedral today, you have uh, Synagogue, the synagogue who's on the left, <laughs> she's sort of blocked over there, and Ecclesia, the church. No, uh, Synagogue is on the right, Ecclesia is on the left. And Synagogue, uh, she's looking down, her tablets are falling, slipping from her hands. I'm so sorry, this is a bad picture, but look it up on image Google. You'll see she's blinded by a snake. So that's not just a blindfold, that's a snake. Um, and she has like a fallen goblet in her other hand. I mean, she is broken. Synagoga is having a bad day. She is doing really badly. But if you look it up online, you'll see Ecclesia, the church, who's right next to Synagoga. She's beautiful. She's looking up at the heavens. She's holding her staff proudly. She's doing super well. She's having great hair day. Ecclesia is like doing really well. Um, and so the visual message here is very clear. And um, again, this is what people see every time they walk past the Notre Dame Cathedral. Um, has anyone heard of the Unensau? Yeah, the Unensau. Okay, Kayla, all right. So the Unensau is a huge controversy today about whether to get rid of the Unensau. But there was this mocking idea uh, that Jews, um, well, so let me let me show you what this is. This is outside of a church in Wittenberg. It comes from the 13th century. And it's very hard to see, but this is a this is a pig. I'm pointing to it, but you can't see my finger. And then you might see a figure on the left looking under, pardon me, the anus of the pig, uh, checking the pig. And that's a Jew. And then you see Jewish faces on the bottom of the pig or sow uh, suckling from the teat of the pig. This is grotesque and quite disgusting. Um, so this was um, the 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 motif of Jews sucking from the teat of pig was, again, disgusting, offensive, mocks the Jewish uh, abstention, the Jewish um, sort of aversion to pork that Christians derided. And remember, even in the Roman Empire, um, pork was the most common meat that the Romans would eat. And so they found it insulting and offensive that Jews would not eat pork. And so they mocked it with visuals like this. It's still up today. There's like one Jew in Wittenberg, you could look him up, who's trying to get this taken down. And the town is saying, well, no, it's part of our heritage. And even some of them are saying, well, like it's part of our anti-Semitic heritage, which now we reject, but like we wanna own it. And so it's a question of like, well, do you keep it on display as an admission of guilt? Or is it really like some kind of local pride. Uh, well, the one Jew in Wittenberg who is pretty upset about this does not think that it is uh, a very useful image um, or any kind of admission of guilt. All right. Okay. Now we get to our story. Julie's off. All right. That was just a little overview <laughs> of, um, of how the church has regarded Jews, not just in a top-down way, but 
uh, in, in art and literature, socially, politically. Um, and so how do we get to Nostra Aetate? How do we get to this document in 1965 that retracts the accusation of deicide against the Jews? Anybody heard of Julie Zak? Okay, most people have not heard of this incredible hero, Jules Isaac. And so we're going to start with a little story time. It's actually not a very nice story. This is not a story that we'll tell our children when we're putting them to bed at night. But to understand how extraordinary the transformation of the church is, we also have to appreciate that sometimes these massive changes that affect billions of people derive from one person who's really passionate. And arguably, Jules Isaac is that person. Jules Isaac is a French Jew born in Rennes in 1877. He's an intellectual, historian. By the way, you don't see, you, you just see the PowerPoint image, right? Okay, perfect, okay, fine. All right, so um, I have a source sheet here, but I'm just gonna, again, I can send things out to people uh, after the class. Okay, so uh, he's an intellectual, he's a historian. He forms friendships with Christian colleagues. He's quite liberal. Um, and he witnesses the Dreyfus Affair in 1894, which falsely accused the French general of spying for Germany. Um, he rises the ranks in uh, public office. He becomes in 1936, the Inspector General of Public Education in France, which is quite a high office. But of course we know that in 1939, Germany invades Poland. And in 1940, Germany invades and occupies France and begins to enact uh, discriminatory laws against the Jews. And Isaac Isaac is fired from his post. He's lost his job, there's a war, what's gonna happen to him? Um, now remember that before the war starts, he's a very liberal, a high ranking Jew with close connections to members of the Christian community and actually already has a passion for what today we would call interreligious dialogue. Um, and that's important for later in the story. 1943, under, occupy, under occupation, he goes out for a walk, maybe not a good idea. And uh, he leaves his son, his wife, his daughter, and his son-in-law in his apartment uh, in Paris. And he comes back and they're gone. They're arrested. This, uh, this incident, well, before I talk about how it affects him, they're taken to, they end up at Auschwitz and they're murdered, except for his son who somehow escapes on the way to the concentration camp and then they reunite later in the war. So he loses his wife, his daughter, and he loses his son-in-law. He and his son survive. And this leads Isaac to become absolutely obsessed with anti-Semitism, just totally focused, obsessed, myopically, um, just entranced by this idea of like, how do you, uh, eradicate anti-Semitism. And he becomes obsessed with specifically Christian theological anti-Semitism. And he starts reading and reading and reading. He's reading the New Testament. He's reading the Church Fathers. Uh, he's reading as much history as, as he can. And he ends up writing a book. And the book is called Jesus and Israel. This book is published in 1947. No, he finishes in 1947. It's published in 1948. And what he tries to do, he's not the first person to do this, but it's very important in the historical context. There were scholars doing this in the 19th century too, but what he tries to do is to narrow the gap between the teachings of Jesus and his followers and the Jewish people, especially the, the Jews of the first century. And so he tries to argue, well, I think I can actually go ahead in this uh, PowerPoint. Yeah, yeah, there it is. He argues 
18 points. <laughs> By the way, the worst thing you could do with the PowerPoint is put like as much text into the PowerPoint as possible. PowerPoint is nice for pretty pictures. It's not nice for like tons of text, but here you go. Um, and so it's important to just see these are his 18 points. Um, and the, the idea is that every Christian needs to know that Judaism does not stand in opposition to Christianity. And if that knowledge can be um, imbibed into the Christian imagination, then anti-Semitism, at least as it is expressed in Christian context, can be eradicated. And so you can look at some of these points. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus lived as a Jew. Throughout his ministry, he only sought to gather adherents from the Jews. It's actually quite impressive that he knows this because it is against the scholarly trends, which really now it's like obvious for scholars to work on the New Testament within the context of the first century Jewish, you know, um, milieu. But in the 1940s, that was not the predominant scholarly trend. So it, he, he's ahead of the game. Um, and so, uh, so what does he do with these 18 points? First, he publishes the book. It doesn't get a lot of attention, but he, um, he had been part of this Jewish Christian dialogue group from the 1930s and the 1940s. Um, and he also knew of um, a number of councils, the American Conference of Christians and Jews, the National Council of Christians and Jews. There were different groups being established in uh, North America and in Europe that had been around since before the war. And he says, all of these groups, we need to meet. And they meet in Switzerland. They, they have a meeting in 1947 to talk about, they call it an emergency conference on anti-Semitism and it's held in Silesburg in Switzerland. Uh, and Julie Zach is one of the organizers of this meeting and he brings his 18 points to the meeting. And <laughs> the more text, the, the, the participants of the Silesburg conference um, sort of take the 18 points and they distill it into 10 main points that become recommendations for Christian leaders about how to talk about Jews. And so again, you'll see overlap between this and the 18 points. Um, there's one God, of course, very controversial in halakha, whether that's the case, but there's one God that speaks to us uh, through the Old and the New Testaments. Um, Jesus was born of a Jewish mother. Jesus lived and died as a Jew. Don't present the passion. Oop, sorry. Oh, I was excited to share that picture with you. Uh, uh, don't present the death of Jesus, the passion, in a way that brings the odium of the killing of Jesus upon all Jews and Jews alone. Okay. And now, pretty picture time. Look at that. I think this is phenomenal. Let me see if I could zoom in for you so you could see all their pretty faces. No, I can't because I don't know how to use PowerPoint. Uh, but see all those people. I mean, this is two years after the eradication of European Jewry. So I don't know. I want to smile when I see this picture, but also, you know, these people came together um, in in the wake of such evil and such terror, that's really, and, and, and I'm not just speaking about the Jews here. I mean, it took an enormous act of, of, of courage, I think for the Christian uh, representatives to come as well. And they do, and they come and they put together this document, uh, the 10 points of Silesburg. But for Julie Zak, this is not enough. He becomes obsessed with meeting the Pope. He's like, I got to meet the Pope um, and I have to bring my points to the Pope. He needs to read this because he understands that the Christian, the Catholic church is organized hierarchically and the change is not gonna happen. The change that he desires is not gonna happen unless he gets to the very top of the church hierarchy. And so he becomes sort of obsessed uh, with meeting the Pope. Now, post Pope Pius XII, dies in 1958 and uh, John 23rd, uh, 23, I think you say John 23rd, I always get this wrong, uh, takes over 
Now he is a, a much more ecumenical figure who uh, is sensitive to the necessity of putting the church into conversation with Protestant uh, groups and denominations and also with Jews. Hold on, let me see what's on the next slide over here. Wait, okay, oh, that's, no, I'm gonna stay on the picture for now. Okay, we're getting to Nostra Aetate. We're in the late 1950s, we are getting there. So 1959, Pope John XXIII announces to the world that we are going to have this ecumenical council. What does ecumenical mean? It, well, nobody really knows what it means um, in this context, but ecumenical usually refers to some kind of gathering of Christians who come from different parts of Christianity, Protestant, Catholic, um, but it could also mean going beyond the Protestant and the Catholic world and reaching out to other faiths. Um, Pope John XXIII is very concerned with the relationship that the church has with the Jews. He changes the notorious Good Friday prayer that calls upon Christians to pray for the perfidious Jews. Um, and, uh, and he changes that, he takes out the word perfidious. And so uh, he is concerned with improving the relationship. I don't know about a full out apology for the Holocaust. He wouldn't take responsibility. I don't know if he should have, um, you know, that's a huge controversy, the degree to which the Catholic Church was responsible for the events leading up to the Holocaust. But in any case, um, he is interested in some degree of reconciliation. And in 1960, he creates what's called the Secretariat for Promoting Christian Unity. Again, people are not clear about what this group is going to do. Um, and this is at the beginning of the summer. By September, he says, all right, to the person in charge, a very famous cardinal who becomes very close with the Jewish community in North America, Cardinal Bea. And he says to Cardinal Bea, write up a statement about the Jewish people. So in June 5th, uh, 1960, he creates his group, the Secretariat for Promoting Christian Unity, whatever that means. But by September, this group is being uh, tasked with the job of declaring something about the Jewish people, something about relations between the church and the people of Israel. Everyone's shocked that it wasn't what this was supposed to be about. When you say ecumenical council, you're really talking about a kind of intra-Christian conversation, maybe with Protestants, but people are very surprised. Like you're taking this thing about promoting Christian unity and you're using it to draft a statement about the Jews. Like what happened? Pope John 23, that you are now suddenly using this group to write a statement about the Jews. Uh, anybody know what happened? You could just jump in while I take a sip of coffee. Vatican II? Vatican II is in 1965. I mean, the council has been, is, is, is being galvanized at this moment. But what happens is that between June and September, right, he, he creates the group in, in June, on June 5th, and in September, he requests from Cardinal Bea to write a declaration on the Jews. What happens is at the end of June, well, in the middle of June, Jules Isaac met with the Pope. He got his meeting. He got his meeting with the Pope. And he, it's a closed door meeting. And he, we know what he must have said. We don't have a recording of it. But he must have said, you need to do something about Christian anti-Semitism. I'm begging you as someone who lost his family to make a statement that speaks to the church's commitment to protect or, or maybe protect is not the right word, but to combat anti-Jewish hatred that has fed into the destruction of European Jewry. And something about this meeting is very compelling to Pope John the 23rd because he reaches out to Cardinal Bea 
and it starts to happen. It takes five years to produce Nostratate. It's a very controversial document. It undergoes multiple drafts. There are many people who are very upset about it, who don't like it, but um, the, the Vatican begins to reach out to a Jewish advisory group through the AJC, the American Jewish Committee, and uh, most prominently, uh, they, they're also talking to uh, European chief rabbis, they're talking to numerous rabbis, but I, I would say most prominently, or at least the way the story is told, the figure who is most deeply involved in guiding, advising Cardinal Bea about this document is Abraham Joshua Heschel. Um, okay, so I didn't have a picture of Heschel. I was doing, I was adding pictures last night, like midnight side. So I didn't get the Heschel, but you could, you could look up a picture of Heschel if you want to see what he looks like. Mm -hmm. uh, and so Bea and Heschel are in touch in the early 1960s. Uh, the process begins. Uh, there is a, a lot of interference from various cardinals across the world, cardinals um, in South America who have theological objections to um, to the statement. Cardinals in Asia and Africa who have pragmatic, uh, pragmatic concerns because they live in Muslim majority lands and they're saying, listen, you make a statement about how much you love the Jews that could be very destabilizing to cardinals and archdiocese in the Middle East. Uh, there are political objections, of course, as well uh, to um, those dioceses who don't yet recognize Israel. The Vatican does not open up formal relations with the Holy See until the early 1990s. Uh, so it's quite late. Um, and so uh, you know, what do you do with all this opposition? They're revising, they're revising, they're revising. Um, <clears throat> but in any case, uh, they finally produce a watered down version of the original statement that Heschel was involved in. And that statement is approved on October 28th, 1965. So the anniversary was just a couple days ago. Um, 2,312 uh, bishops vote and only 88 dissent. But part of that is because as it stands now, the statement is quite uh, ambiguous. And so uh, let's let's take a look at that. And that's kind of where we're going to uh, spend the next uh, 15 minutes or so. Uh, okay, let's look at this. So now we embark on a close reading. So boring, we've got a lot of text, uh, a lot of text on this PowerPoint, but oh well. Um, okay, so the Nostratate means in our time. And, um, and so you see that word over here. This is like the beginning. Oh, I can't highlight. That's weird. That's why I have to use Word documents so I could highlight. But you see in that, every time I highlight, it goes to the next page. Uh, you see in our time, that's the beginning of the statement, when day by day, mankind, let's say humankind, is being drawn closer together. The ties between different peoples are becoming stronger. The church examines more closely her relationship to non-Christian religions. Now the document is going to address Islam, Eastern religions, but but it's very important to know, because you wouldn't realize it if you just read the document today, that what generated this document is concern for the Christian-Jewish relationship. That's just how it is. That's just a fact. If you read the document, you might not know it. Because first it starts by saying, you know, we can, again, it's hard to know what it means by this, but there's sort of a divine truth existing outside of the church that lies in other religions. And it does make specific mention of Islam and Eastern religions. Um, but I don't have that. In this, uh, in this PowerPoint, because I want to get to the heart of the statement, and that's in paragraph four. So let's do a, <clears throat> a deep dive. And the reason why it's so important to closely read this document, it's not fun to stare at text all day like I do, but uh, the ambiguities here are really important because they're still being debated. Uh, in other words, it's easy to say, I don't accuse you of something. It's harder to say, okay, but here's what I actually think of you. So. It's clear that the church says we do not accuse the Jews of deicide. So what exactly 
is the status of the Jews? Um, and, and, and we have to think about that question through the lens of this rule uh, that was recently affirmed in a document uh, called Dominus Jesus, which we'll talk about next week. The rule is there's no salvation outside of, I have to say it, please don't send me angry emails, Christ. There's no salvation outside of Christ. I'm just quoting. I don't believe in Jesus as Messiah. Okay, but whatever. Okay, as the sacred synod searches into the mystery of the church, mystery is a very important word. Uh, maybe we'll have time to talk about that in the Q&A. Um, the mysterion, that's the Greek. It's a very old word. You find it in very old uh, early Christian texts. Uh, it remembers the bond that spiritually ties the people of the new covenant to Abraham's stock. And already it's kind of pushing against John chapter eight, because uh, remember what Jesus said in John chapter eight, where he cited as saying, Jews don't come from Abraham, uh, you come from the devil. So the church of Christ acknowledges that according to God's saving design, the beginnings of her faith and her election are found already among the patriarchs, Moses and the prophets. So that is what we would call supersessionist. If you this is a, a word that um, even its meaning is debated among people involved in dialogue. Supersessionist tends to refer to replacement theory. So if, if you're a supersessionist Christian, you believe that the covenant between God and the Christians replaced the covenant between um, God and the Jews and that that covenant with the Jews was broken. But there's different forms of supersessionism. There, there's what's called hard supersessionism, which is the covenant is broken with the Jews and completely replaced and God has no covenantal relationship with the Jews. And then there's what's called soft supersessionism, which is what we see here. That if you open up the Hebrew Bible or they would say the Old Testament and you're reading the stories that it is working towards something. And that something is the coming of Jesus and the salvation and forgiveness that he offered fallen humanity. Um, so that's not necessarily saying that Jews don't have their own covenant, but there's a soft supersessionism here. And again, I just want to highlight the ambiguity of this text because it, the language is so careful. Every word here is intentional, even when we don't know what it means. <laughs> it's still intentional. Okay. Um, she professes that all who believe in Christ Abraham's sons, interesting, according to faith, are included in the same patriarch's call. Okay. So um, and I'll, I'll keep going and we'll go back to that. And likewise, that the salvation of the church is mysteriously foreshadowed by the chosen people's exodus from the land of bondage. And so again, um, those people who are part of the Christian covenantal community have a legitimate claim to uh, the stories that are preserved in the Hebrew Bible as being Christian stories. Okay, so like, where's the good stuff about the Jews? So far, I'm just seeing some supersessionism. Like, let's get to the reconciliation. Uh, the church cannot forget that she received the revelation of the Old Testament through the people with whom God, I don't know why they're so careful about not saying Jews. Um, again, the church received the revelation of the Old Testament through the people with whom God in his mercy concluded the ancient covenant. So this is, again, it's like a give and take. Like the Jews did receive revelation, but ultimately that revelation has continued down to the Christian people. And this is actually quite a lovely uh, phrasing, I think of what I would still call soft supersessionism, nor can she forget that she draws sustenance from the root of that well-cultivated olive tree 
onto which have been grafted the wild shoots. And some of you are nodding because this is Pauline language. We find this imagery in the letters of Paul. So if you've read the letter to the Romans, not that I expect the Jews on this, on this call to have, you know, be particularly familiar with the letter to the Romans, you'll find similar language of grafting the people who follow Jesus and the Gentiles who are following Jesus onto this covenantal tree. Uh, and the church believes that by his crossed, um, by his cross, Christ our peace, reconciled Jews and Gentiles, making both one and himself. I think that many Jews reading that sentence would uh, take issue with that claim, but okay. Uh, it's a church document, but still kind of waiting for the reconciliation. Let's see. Oh my God, more text. It keeps going. <laughs> okay. Well, this is very important. Hold on. I just want to see how many. Okay. We only have two more. Okay. And then we're going to wrap up. All right. I'm going to skip Romans um, as Holy Scripture testifies. It just, it, it keeps getting worse before it gets better, but that's eh, okay. Jerusalem did not recognize the time of her visitation. So that means the people, the Jewish people who lived in Jerusalem did not recognize the arrival of the Messiah, nor did the Jews in large number accept the gospel. Indeed, not a few opposed its spreading. Now I think, but I don't have it in front of me, that the original version of Noshartate did not go on and on and on about like how the Jews aren't super great. Uh, but this was put into sort of temper what comes next. What comes next is really very central. This is the most important sentence in Ostratate. So get ready, like gird yourselves. Nevertheless, despite everything that we just said, yes, the Jews did not recognize most of them, the messiahship of Jesus. Yes, they were involved in rejecting him and ultimately his death. Nevertheless, and even though the scriptures of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, are telling a Christian story. Nevertheless, God holds the Jews most dear for the sake of their fathers. He does not repent, and here that means regret. He does not regret the gifts he makes or the calls he issues. I get chills every time I read. Such is the witness of the apostle. In other words, it's endemic to Christian teaching that God holds the Jews most dear. Now, this is kind of something that you might say to your child, I hold you most dear, right? What does it not say? God maintains the living covenant? No, <laughs> there's no technical language here. And that's very purposeful, right? There's not going to be any technical language about the status of the covenant, of the Jewish covenant, right? It doesn't say God maintains the legitimacy of the covenant and the revelation received by the Jews at Sinai, inherited and interpreted by the rabbinic community. <laughs> no, it's an emotion. It's not a technical status. Is this theology or is this just, you know, a nice reconcil reconciling statement? But it's still very, very, very important because we've never up until this time seen a doctrinal statement about the Jews that express the idea that God's affectionate towards them. God holds the Jews most dear for the sake of their fathers. I mean, just sit with that for a second. Since the spiritual patrimony common to Jews and Christians is so great, this sacred synod wants to foster and recommend that mutual understanding and respect, which is the fruit above all, of biblical and theological studies as well as fraternal dialogues. And then, and then it sort of like back walks in, chill, yeah, the Jewish authorities and those who follow their lead, press for the death of Christ. But it's actually very important that you have the sentence here because remember until now, the gospel of Matthew was being read as holding all Jews responsible for the death of Jesus the Messiah. And here there's a limitation on who was responsible. So yes, there were Jews who were responsible, but some Jews, the Jews who were present. You cannot metaphorize, allegorize all Jews into being this sort of symbolic 
antichrist, symbolic, you know, uh, enemy of Jesus. But the people who were there were involved. And that could have been true. I mean, we have rabbinic texts that own up to that. Those who follow their lead press for the death of Christ, but what happened in his passion cannot be charged against all Jews. Passion here means suffering without distinction, then alive, nor against Jews of today. And again, we go a little bit to soft supersessionism. Although the church is the new people of God, the Jews should not be presented as rejected or accursed as if this followed from the Holy Scriptures. Now, of course, it's a very difficult clause because it does follow from the Holy Scriptures. <laughs> if you read the Gospel of John, and if you read other uh, texts preserved in the New Testament, the sad truth is you have to work very hard to exorcise, I use that word on purpose, to exorcise the anti-Judaism um, in these documents that are scriptural for the church. Nevertheless, all should see to it that in catechetical work, and it's taken me years to be able to say that word correctly, catechetical means teaching uh, or in the preaching of the word of God, you don't do anything that doesn't conform to the truth of the gospel. And the truth here means God holds the Jews most dear. I mean, can you believe it? Remember the Crusades? <laughs> Remember the Inquisition? Now it's not all lovey-dovey because this is a controversial statement and it continues to be a controversial statement. But somehow miraculously, I have stayed within the hour of this class. And so what I'd like to do now is um, many miracles abound and I would like to open it up for conversation, for questions, and then we'll talk a little bit about next week. Any impressions, thoughts, questions? A quick question. They, this document was written in Latin, correct? Yes. So how many different translations of it are there? A great question. If you go to the uh, Vatican website, they're very controlled about these things. It's not like the Jews were kind of like decentralized and haphazard, but um, it's very controlled. And so there's an official English translation on the Vatican website. There's an official Spanish one. I mean, they're French. So if you go, you'll see the official, the many languages. And, and it's like very easy to find. You can just Google like for the, once you're even on the Vatican website, you can search it. Uh, but so that, this is the, what I've shown you is from the Vatican website. So yes, they're careful to translate it. Cause then you're right. Uh, there can be like many, many renderings uh, and, and that can lead to confusion. But whoever translated it preserved those ambiguities rather than trying to you know clarify and ambiguities are really um become a source of contention in the 80s and 90s as we're going to see with the papacy of um john paul ii did they ever translate it into hebrew Ooh, i have no idea fascinating question i mean there must be hebrew like israeli scholars who need the text but I don't know if the Vatican oversaw Hebrew translation. Wow. So someone who's listening to this has to, um, you know, uh, write a, a doctoral thesis on, or, or just write a, publish a Hebrew version with commentary. That would be a great project that I will not do. Because you guys did do a Jewish annotated New Testament. Correct. But yes. <laughs> yeah. And what's amazing to me is how long it took for that project to come underway. The JANT was published only a couple of years ago, maybe 2018, 19. Um, and that was edited by Mark Brettler and Amy Gillivine uh, and is an absolutely monumental work when it comes to 
situating the New Testament into its proper Jewish context. But again, you know, it's been, it's been 50, 60 years since Nostratate, and we're just starting to see uh, the, the academic uh, you know, community catch up, I think. I mean, AG has been doing amazing work for years, but, uh, but the mainstreaming of this work is, is really just happening now. Other questions? I don't know. I'm not on Facebook, so I don't know if someone is, if anyone's commenting on the Facebook, so I'll have to ask. Okay, I see mm -hmm. Kayla shaking. So far, it's so far pretty quiet on the Facebook um, questions. Okay, so next. Um, do the other religions in Nostra Tate get so, like how much does it care, do, do they care about it? Or are we just, or I guess we the Jews more interested in it? I don't know. How much do Jews care about the references to Islam and Eastern religion? What's, what's the question? Uh, other way, how much do the other groups referenced in this care about the document? Like, oh, that's a great question. Um, and I, I don't know the answer. I mean, I think that Catholic Muslim dialogue is very, very new and it's very uneven. And I think it's actually, I, I, it's not nice to say this word, but I think it's a little bit behind in the sense that that relationship is a little bit younger. Uh, than the Catholic Jewish relationship. And I know people involved in it, but I can't speak as a historian to what's happening uh, there. I do wanna say before I forget, before our time is up, that I would like to ask people who are committed to this series, if you can, to purchase, oh no, I don't have the book, but it, it's on my bookshelf five feet away, but to purchase an amazing book called, uh, I can't post a link because it's not online. Someone said, can you post a link to the PowerPoint? It's not online, it's on my desktop, but email me. But first I'm gonna ask, those of you who come into this series to please purchase Karma Ben Yochanan's book, Jacob's Younger Brother. And I'm going to put that into the chat. Uh, this is obviously not something that you have to do because I'm asking people to spend money. But um, if you're willing to, to purchase this book, it's very, very helpful, not just for this course. I don't know why I can't post in the chat. Um, hold on one second, I just did it um, twice. Uh, so it will be very helpful to the series. I think it's also just a good book to add to your library if you're interested in this topic. And I would ask if somehow you get um, you get this before next week and you have time to read pages 82 to 41. So I don't like giving people homework, but if you're going to read it anyway, those pages are going to be where we focus our work next week. Uh, no pressure if you don't read it. We're, you know, it's not a loss, but it'll enrich what we do next week. Uh, and it's just a great book. So next week we're going to um, look at what happened in the wake of Nostra Aetate. We're going to explore tensions uh, between public gestures and doctrine, uh, 82 to 141. Uh, and yes, um, I, I don't have the list of emails for people participating in the series but I'm sure that Noah and Kayla, okay, yeah. I can get that for you. Fantastic, okay, so um, if you're willing to purchase it. Okay, so next week, yes, we're gonna look at the papacies of John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and then the following week, we'll look at the Jewish response. Um, so if there are any other questions, we have another minute, otherwise we'll say goodbye. Thank you so much, as always, a lot, but fascinating, fascinating, thank you. Just racing through. I'll try to speak slower next week. Thank you for being here. Take care, everybody. All right. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Um, it's always a pleasure to have Dr. Sinkovich talking about what she does best at Drisha. And pages for the, the recommended um, reading will um, be set out later. And 
If you want to join us for more learning at Drisha, you can find our Fallsman classes at drisha.org slash classes. Our next class is coming up soon at one o'clock on poverty. And if you want to join, it's not too late to sign up. All right. Thank you, everyone. Have a good day. Okay.